go ahead and get started. So I'd like to welcome everyone to uh, this month's edition of the AO Trauma North America Journal Club. Uh, it's a fairly broad topic today. It's on uh, infections and orthopedic related infections. I'd like to thank uh, my fellow moderators, Dr. Gatan and Dr. Natali for helping out and agreeing to participate. I'd also like to help our or, uh, uh, thank our guest lecturers, Dr. Obremski, Dr. Gary, and Dr. Serkin. I'd also like to thank Dr. O'Toole, who can't be here for the live session. So with that, we'll get started with our videos. And uh... Cool. Well, Dr. O'Toole, thank you so much for doing this uh, interview for the AO uh, Journal Club. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit, a little bit about the Fix-It trial. Um, Sounds good. Cool. So first question is, where did you guys get the idea for this study? Yeah, the FIXIT trial was uh, really one of the first studies out of metric, which was funded back in 2009. So the idea for FIXIT really came about before then. So it's been around for a long time. And a bunch of people, I think, had this idea. Um, and basically, the gist of it was there's some stuff that had come out of the military showing that ring fixators for bad tibias from the IED blast, et cetera, resulted in lower infection rates. It wasn't a trial, it was retrospective. And then once Fixit sort of got studying, got going, there was also civilian literature out of Miami um, that showed really encouraging results in terms of infection in these bad open tibias. Bad open tibias, as you know, have terrible infection rates, sort of leap studies showed that, you know, infection rates up in the 25, 30% rate. And the idea is, you know, if you could not put metal at the fracture site would this reduce the infection rate so that was the sort of core idea behind the fix-it trial if you did a monitoring fixator no metal at the fracture site as opposed to nails or maybe a plate for particular injury would that reduce the infection rate that was sort of the driving idea behind fixing cool um and now that you guys have put tons and tons of time and energy into this um a prospective that's a very challenging prospective trial so i want to congratulate you guys on that effort um what did you guys find yeah, to your, to your first point about being challenging, it sure was. And, you know, there's lots of different, you know, it took everybody in metric all the country to come together, all these centers. It's not, although we all worry about it as traumatologists, like a bad severe 3A or a 3B tibia that needs a flap, they don't come in that often, actually. Even the busiest trauma centers, you know, you're not doing five a day. So we needed everyone to band together to do this trial. And so it was, yeah, it was, it was hard. And we can talk about challenges if you want later. What we found basically was the, so the primary outcome measure was this composite. We didn't power just on infection because you knew infection leads to other things and there's competing risks, right? Like let's say the ring fixers were better at infection, but they were worse at other things. So we wanted to sort of encompass that whole trade-off. So there'll be six things in the primary outcome measure. And, uh, and we, have, you know, we thought they'd be, it'd be better when we put all these things together, but actually it was the opposite, it was worse. And so what we found was there was more reoperations and admissions for complications in the ring fixer group. So it was the exact opposite of what we hoped to find, frankly. And most interestingly, there was not really a difference in infection. So that was the real surprise. Because some of the other stuff we found, you could say, oh, you could quibble with, well, you know, you're saying, you had to readjust the frames and you're counting that in your primary outcome measure. I don't think that's a big deal. You know, you could argue about that, but the infection finding is really hard to argue because we're talking about deep infection. You had to go to the OR. So that really made us scratch our head a little bit. And um, I think it's super useful information for me. And, and frankly, just now personally, not talking about my role in the study, 
just makes me less enthusiastic about rings for routine open tibia fractures. Yeah, it's super interesting. Just to start really simple before we get into some of the, the weeds of that, um, what do you think the most important points that readers should take away, two or three most important points? Yeah, I think the, the number one point for me is that for a bad tibia fracture, we did not, we found no difference in the deep surgical site infection if you treat it with a modern ring fixer that is a circular frame versus an IM nail. So that sort of argues, like there's not an infection benefit to going to all the hassle of a ring fixer. So I think that's an important thing. The second thing is if you put the ring fixers on, you know, it's those patients, everybody who's done them know, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of work for the patient and you and managing them. And, you know, there are adjustments and, you know, that was the real driver of uh, having more complications, more re complications of part readmission is, you know, malunions, quote unquote, hardware failure, not that the things were breaking in half, but you were losing reduction and problems like that. So those are higher in the ring fixers. And then the final one is that there's a large proportion of the patients that are still in the rings in a year. Um, and I guess I was going to pick a fourth one is that there's still a ton of infections in both groups. The, the infection proportion hasn't changed since LEAP. I mean, you could argue we've made no progress in 20 some odd years at reducing infection for these bad injuries. Zippo, it's the same as it was back in the time of LEAP in the mid nineties. Yeah, that's super compelling. Uh, what do you, I know this is not probably data driven, but what do you think is happening behind those results? I'm, I'm with you that I, it's very surprising that, you know, we always thought biofilm hardware um, and taking the hardware out would would help to solve that problem, if not solve that problem. Like what, what yeah. is going on here, do you think? I'm not sure. You know, one of you might argue, you might look at Hudson's results who had these, you know, incredible low infection rates, these three Bs and three Cs that he published out of Miami. And you might say, oh, it's all about the ring fixer. Maybe it's about how he debrided. You know, he has a very different way of thinking about debridement and it was very aggressive and, and treating a open tibia fracture like osteo, you know, I'm going to go back all the way to bleeding bone, going to be very meticulous about that. So you know, a lot of these 3B tibias you see, they're stripped. They have no bone loss. Most people in North America just leave them like that and put the flap on. But that's not what he did, right? He would come back. So maybe it has to do more with debridement. And, you know, maybe it's true. Yeah, putting some metal in there is doesn't help. But there's so much other dead stuff in there. Um, and we don't have great tools uh, to figure out what's alive and what's dead. And obviously you're you know, very interested in that question yourself and doing research studies uh, on this and you know, how do we figure out the debridement? And so maybe that's what this study says is that you know, the implant is not that important, uh, it's other factors. Yeah, it's super interesting. And um, you know, clearly there's biofilm and other, not just hardware, right? Uh, right? Which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Um, if you were going to redo this study, do you think you would do anything different in this study, looking back? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I, there were a lot of challenges in this study, and I think there, and I think overall it went very well, better. I think if I was going to redo it, I would have dropped the prospective observational arm. Mm -hmm. So what's published, you know, what's out in the online. Uh, part of JPGS and will come out soon is just a randomized trial. The, the FIXIT trial also had an observational arm. And the reason we did this, it was one of our first metric studies. And 
we didn't know if we could get people to randomize. And we had a bunch of money and we were afraid that you know, what happens if no one can randomize and then we have no patients and we, you know, we can't do anything. So we were too chicken. The trialists who we consulted with said, don't do it, just do a randomized trial. Don't have a prospective observational arm, but we were too chicken to do it. And so the sport trials on our mind because that had gone through all the way, it had tons of crossover and problems in sport, obviously, but we, we decided to have an observational arm. And so we didn't publish that data, haven't looked at it yet either. But I think, you know, that observational arm, you know, there's lots, there's a reason we do randomization. And I think in hindsight, you know, we spent about as many patients are in that portion of the study as the other, we could have used that money otherwise. And maybe we would have enrolled slightly faster if we didn't have the observational arm. Um, why did you guys decide not to look at the observational arm at this stage? So that's coming. So there's a bunch of you know papers that are coming out of it yet. Um, my thought on that is we're well powered in the randomized trial. That was our plan. That's the highest quality data. And I think the observational data can be very informative and is interesting, particularly to the extent that you actually think uh, that there's pretty good balance between the two groups in the observational arm. There's not. So there's not good balance because or right off the bat, you would expect that there's good balance, there's roughly the same number of patients as two treatment groups. That's not, it's male dominated. So there's many more males. And so how it's supposed to work is if the patient refused randomization, you would go to the patient and say, hey, we have equipoise, so you flip a coin, you know, so we're not gonna have the computer flip a coin, you pick whatever you want. Now, that could be that patients prefer, when they hear the story, there was a video we gave to like, make sure that everyone was getting the same story. Maybe patients, when they hear that, they're like, yeah, I, that, that story makes me want to do nail. But, you know, what we have the obvious bias that we always worry about is that the really bad ones get rings and the not so bad ones get nails. And so the, the you know, the whole, the, the fix is in against the, the ring group because you're getting worse patients in the ring group. Uh, and I worry that the observational cohort study is full of that bias. We'll do causal inference stuff. We'll do fancy statistics to try and control for that but there's nothing better than randomization to control for something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. That's super interesting though. That'll be a super interesting cohort uh, to come. Yeah. And, you know, and, be, and, and lumping them all together will be good for secondary papers about other things, you know, things that on variables we didn't randomize, looking at, you know, timing and all sorts of different treatment variables that weren't randomized. I think then you might want to lump the whole data set together. So we've adjudicated them all and done all that stuff. We just haven't done any analysis or looked at it. Yeah. Um, what other kind of challenges do you think are important that you guys faced? Well, one big criticism of the study will be that, you know, basically it didn't show what we thought we'd show that the rings work one. So, well, that's because you were bad at the rings. And, you know, you did it at centers where, yeah, you train people a little and you, you had expertise requirements at the centers, but they were really low. And, you know, everybody knows how to do a nail, but not everybody knows how to manage a ring and fix the ring. And, the other way we could have done it is done it just at, you know, compared ring, you could have done a, you know, a center randomization or something and, and pick centers that were uh, experts to be eligible for this randomization. So that would have, the study never could have been done, right? Like we wouldn't have had enough patients to do it. So that's a non-starter to me, but imagine if you could do it, right? Cause there aren't enough ring experts, I would argue in North America to do the study like that, but let's say there were. So even if you did it then, and let's say it showed that the rings were better, then you would say, well, but that's only in the expert hands. Like we don't care what it does in expert hands. We want to know like 
all the rest of us. What, how does that work out? So it wouldn't have been transferable. It wouldn't be generalizable to everyone. So we did a more pragmatic trial design. And you know, now you can you know, criticize it the other way. But I don't think we really had a choice because it wasn't practical to do the study as in with you know, experts, ring fixers versus you know, just everybody else doing nails. Cool. Um, so what next? What's coming next in this line of work, or what's fix it too, or uh, you know? Um... Yeah, I, I mean, there's a whole host of secondary studies that will come out of this data set because, just like all of these large prospective trials, often the you know, the central question isn't always the most interesting finding out of it. You know, it's all these secondary questions about flaps and debridements and transport and all these other things you can imagine this patient population that now you have a decent-sized prospective cohort that you can look at in detail. Uh, we collect a lot of information in these patients, so our hope is that there'll be a lot of secondary papers that I think people all over the country will lead out of this data set. I think for me personally, what it, you know, had we shown that ring fixers were this, you know, the cat's meow in terms of reducing infection, then we'd say, oh, you know, how do we get more people doing ring fixers and let's, how do we get the cost down, you know, how do we do that? And so now it's backed off my personal enthusiasm for it. And so now I think it's more about how, what do we do to reduce the infection that isn't putting everyone in a ring fixer? You know what? That's uh, my interest. And I think a lot of people's nationally is we've, we have not made much progress, as I've just mentioned. And we, we need to. We have a big problem here for the patients. And uh, there's lots of exciting stuff happening on that field. And I think for me, that's sort of where the, the focus needs to go. Cool. Well, that's awesome. I think we are about out of time for, for this interview, but I'm sure there will be amazing discussion to come uh, at the at the May 23rd or w w at the time of the Journal Club. Thank <laughs> you so much for doing this. I really appreciate being asked on behalf of the, it's a pleasure to represent this on behalf of Metric and the Fix-It investigators. Cool. I'm here with Dr. Michael Serkin. We're going to discuss your paper on antibiotic nails and the infect in the treatment of uh, infected long bones. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So your paper discusses is a great, great review of how to uh, treat infected long bones. So after your standard workup um, in the setting of an infected uh, tibial nail, uh, can you discuss kind of your algorithm of taking cultures once the nail is out? So um, if I know the if I know the patient's infected, it's fairly easy and straightforward. We try to get a sample from. Uh, if it's a non-union, the non-union site. If there's no non-union, then what we'll do is we'll basically pull the nail, culture the nail, and get um, cultures intramedullary, typically from urea, uh, as well as some samples by putting a pituitary down. The real question is, is when you think someone might be infected or you're not sure and they still don't have a healed fracture, what are we doing? So that I think to me is the is the bigger question where there's really some art or some practice where you have to try to figure out what's going on. So for me, what I'll do is if I have someone that I know or think is infected and they have a nail in place, I'll typically biopsy or take cultures from the non-union site where they're typically infected. It's typically from an open fracture. But in addition to that, I will take cultures from pull a locking screw, one proximal, one distal, and take some cultures there as well, because that gives me a sense if those cultures are positive, 
the extent of how infected the patient is, whether it's the entire intramedullary canal, is it just something local, which may or may not push me to try to retain the implant versus pull the implant and, and go ahead with an antibiotic rod and, and do a, a different protocol for the treatment of the infected non-union. Okay. And do you always take a bone biopsy or bone sample? I always try to get some tissue from the non-union or from the tissue around a non-union or tissue from around the bone. If it's a, if there was a plate there, I'll try to culture the membrane that's underneath the plate. If there's a nail there, we try to get some of that membrane inside, but it's always uh, tissue surrounding or next to bone. And sometimes I'll even throw pieces of the non-union or bone directly into the culture jars and try to get them uh, cultured as well. Okay. And in your paper, you you say very rarely is one debridement sufficient. How do you know? How do you know when it's clean, or how do you know when to proceed with the next stage? That's a really good question. So for me, it's typically if I see purulent material, it's a minimum of two washouts, and then it's kind of just guessing. You know, it's educated guessing. It's seeing how the tissue looks on the second washout. Typically, when I go back for a second washout after the number of debris months I've done in my life, it's pretty clean and everything looks fairly like, oh, I guess it died. I didn't need to be here, but I know I did. Uh, and so that's good. If I still see purulent material or it just doesn't look right, then I'll do a second or a third debris month. If it's a single uh, something that's infected and we're just removing hardware and there's no purulent material or something that they have some symptoms. Those are the ones I may do all in one stage, pull the, pull the hardware out and then put some uh, bioresorbable antibiotic beads in and, and treat that in a one stage. But typically if it's a real infection, we're trying to go to remember, we're not trying to eliminate the infection. Nothing we do is going to make a sterile environment. We're trying to get the bacterial counts down to where the body and antibiotics can treat. And typically that's less than 10 to the fifth. So if we can dilute them and do second to breed months, I think we have a better chance of eradicating the infection. Have you ever regretted going back a second or third time? No. No. <laughs> no, not yet. I guess at some point I will do something horrible to somebody and then I'll say, I guess I shouldn't have done that. But I've never, I've never, I mean, that's like, you know, I've never really been upset when I've gone back. I have been upset when I haven't gone back and going, hey, so I err on going back more often than not. Sounds good. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Rhea and I, we also included one of your uh, papers regarding uh, kind of review of re using a Rhea reamer ear irrigator aspirator do you always use that and when if you don't when would you not use it so uh now that rhea comes smaller so the reamer irrigator aspirator was developed remember just to really to have a sharp reamer and not uh cause heat necrosis then we started using it for bone grafting and i started using it for infections a long time ago and at the time the smallest rhea was a 12. I believe the smallest rhea now is a 10 with rhea 2. And so there's not really a lower extremity long bone that you can't get a 10 rhea down. And so I always do that. And typically for, but I have treated some long bones and humerises. And in those cases, you may not be able to get a 10 down. You may have to use something smaller. So as long as I can get a 10 reamer down, I use a rhea. 
Okay. If you don't have re-available though, what you really have to do is make sure that you vent the distal hole and not with just a pinhole, something substantial. Typically you pull the nail out and you have a distal locking screw. I would just use to uh, enlarge that hole and then I have a vent. And the reason is, is when you're doing your reamer or when you're doing your irrigation, you don't want to be flushing all that infected material into the bloodstream. Remember, fat and everything else when you're reaming goes into the bloodstream. And before I realized and did my homework on it 20 plus years ago, you know, I made some people pretty sick and sent them to the ICU by getting them really septic. But now with the rea and negative pressure venting, uh, I haven't seen that problem. Okay. Um, in your paper too, you also discussed the uh, the amount of antibiotic you put in your nail. So you, one gram of vancomycin powder and 1.2 grams of Tobra. Is that the same? And what would you say to people that think more is better? Yes, dude. So right now my protocol for you for it, it's it's changing a little bit people like to put a lot of antibiotics and i don't have a problem with that but at the same time i don't know how much the antibiotics are truly doing they probably are doing something but at the same time the debridement is important and the stability is important so i want to be able to make my antibiotic rod so my protocol now is is i use uh i use a uh medium viscosity cement. I think it's going to be a little bit th thinner. It comes with 500 of Gent. I put 1.2 of Tobra and two grams of Vanco in there. And what I do is I, uh, I mix that up and I mix the, uh, I'll mix everything up and then I'll add the antibiotics. And then I usually can get that into the gun uh, to be able to gun it into a chest tube. So you, um, mix, you mix the cement and then add the antibiotics? Yes. Okay. All right. And I usually use a pressure, you know, I use, I use a pressure chamber, but that's really just to load the gun. It has nothing to do. I could care less about air bubbles. Actually, the more air bubbles, the better to some degree, because it, it's more porosity, yeah. you know, and don't forget, you know, most of our data would probably suggest that um, we don't have uh we don't really know how much antibiotic is eluded after the first couple of days. So I think it's more about the debridement, more about the stability and the antibiotics help somewhat. In, a, in the setting of a non-union, you discussed using a threaded rod to, to impart some stability. And if you don't have enough stability, what are you doing to augment your non-union? Um, it's rare to not have enough stability. Most of these infected non-unions are not grossly, un they're not floppy. They're fairly stiff. They usually have rotational control because there's soft tissue around them. If I really have something that's grossly unstable, I will probably go ahead and put a two-pin external fixator on it to just control uh, stability around the antibiotic rod. Um, occasionally, I've used antibiotic plates. The whole reason why I switched out of using external fixators and started using um, antibiotic rods is I'm trying to create a soft tissue envelope that is clean and has no tracks down to there to eradicate down to the bone so that we can eradicate the infection. Um, and so that for me uh, is important and I try to get a good soft tissue sleeve and for me the thing that's worked best is antibiotic rods. And sometimes occasionally an antibiotic plate and trying to avoid external fixators. But if you need it, you need it. And 
it's typically more towards the metaphyseal ends of the bone where an antibiotic rod just won't work. Okay. And I've heard you talk about, you know, in open tibias, initially you put a plate on to, uh, to impart some um, provisional stability. And I've heard you talk about taking those off the time of the definitive nail. So if you do use a plate in an infected environment, do you take that out or do you replace it? Um, so for me, I would take it out and replace it on the definitive surgery. So I'm using the antibiotic rod, or sorry, the antibiotic plate, just as a means to stabilize when an antibiotic rod won't work. So I cut this, I, I coat the top surface, I leave the bottom surface flat. I usually screw in a couple of locking guides so I can get my screws in. And that's just acting as a temporizing stability and antibiotic delivery system while we treat the non-infection and then go back and treat the non-union with whatever would work best to treat that non-union, whether it's a clean plate, whether it's a nail, whether it's compression, whether it's an external fixator, but it's really just acting as a temporizing, no different than the temporizing antibiotic rod that's in a patient. Okay. In the case series you present in your paper, the duration of IV antibiotics after the final debridement. Um, do we know the right answer or what's the typical regimen uh, you're using as far as duration? Um, no, we don't know the right answer. There's some people that believe you don't need any IV antibiotics. I can't argue that they don't. I have very good IV people um, and those people typically um, will be recommending what I should do. Typically, if it's an acute or subacute infection, meaning that it doesn't have a lot of dead space, doesn't have um, a lot of uh, dead bone, and it's something they'll go, keep it for six weeks. Otherwise, they go for three months. I try to have, figure out why they do sometimes different people do different things. Um, no matter what, if I'm treating though a non-union and I'm coming back, I'm going to take them off their antibiotics, re-biopsy, make sure the biopsies are negative, and then treat the non-union. And the biopsy for the for the cultures is a whole separate procedure, not connected to the non-union surgery. So you take a biopsy, close them, and then yep. get the final bring them back to my office in two weeks and say, uh, okay. Now, if they have an antibiotic rod in place, I even take it one step further, which is I pull the antibiotic rod, I rear them, collect that, send it to biopsy, put a new antibiotic rod in, and then I bring them back two weeks later uh, if that's negative. If it's positive, if the remains are positive, I've already done the operation for the infection, okay? And then uh, I wait six weeks and then I typically don't do a third round. I typically go right to the, you know, take them off antibiotics, make sure their shed rate CRP don't change, and then renew them. To be honest with you, it's very, very rare, like, like less than 10 times over the last 20 years that I've seen positive biopsies. Somebody asked me, why do you do it then? And I said, that's a good question. Maybe I shouldn't, but it's just what works for me. So I'm going to keep doing it for now. And then we'll wrap up with, in your paper, you gave a great review of how to make an antibiotic nail. What are the most common pitfalls that you've heard about or that you see that people run into while making an antibiotic nail? So the most common thing I see is the, is the chest. We use a 40 French Argyle chest tube. 
that just happens to be what her hospital had when I started doing it. And it didn't seem to stick very often. Then one day somebody says, well, what do you do when the, when the tube melts to your cement? I go, I don't know. I've never seen that. Sure enough, the next time, that's exactly what happened. So now what I do is something that one of my friends taught me. It was actually Jean-Claude de Varon who told me, well, just put a, I just now put a blue wet towel on it so that it keeps the tube a little cooler. And that stops that from happening. The other thing I used to get is these voids when you push the, um, when you push the threaded rod in. And so that uh, you'd get these voids. And now I just put my thumb over the end of the chest tube and slowly pressurize it and allow the cement to leak out. And then it'll fill and coat your chest tube really nicely. And then the third part is, is people will pre-bend their uh, threaded rod into a femoral nail or they'll bend it into a tibial nail before they put it in. If you do that, you're putting a curved stiff metal thing into a chest tube and one of the sides, there'll never be any cement up wherever the herds are curved or the femoral bow is. And so I would say the other tip or the other trick is to put the threaded rod into the chest tube and then bend it after, after you get that in before it hardens into any shape you want. Okay. Well, those are great tips. This is a great review article. I, I recommend it to anybody who's treating infections, especially with long bones and uh, I'd like to thank you for participating and we look forward to the live event. Thanks, Tom. All right, thanks, uh, Dr. Obremski, uh, for chatting with me today. Uh, specifically, um, we're gonna talk about uh, one of the articles that you did in JVJS uh, now, I guess, 12 years ago in 2010. I see it. Awesome, so maintenance of hardware after early post-operative infection following fracture internal fixation. So the first question I wanna ask you is, it's 12 years later now, 2022. Um, so infection, is it still a problem? Uh, what's changed in the last 12 years? Uh, what are your thoughts just on a, a perspective over a decade? Yeah, I, I think infection is still a problem. I think we all know that. Uh, and, uh, you know, bacteria here before us, they'll be here after us. And, uh, you know, I've come to think of it more like a worthy adversary, uh, that it will always be a give and a take. Uh, and I think we, you know, we need bacteria in our microbiome of our individuals and we evolved with them. And so they will always be here. Uh, I think the goal is how to decrease their impact on the fracture healing process. Well. The first um, word that I saw and highlighted was dilemma. And I really like that word. Um, you know, problems have solutions where dilemmas don't necessarily have solutions. Uh, and we certainly don't have a solution to this infection problem yet. What do you consider to be the different sides of this dilemma when we're dealing with fracture healing and infection? And um, once you're done with that, what is the most important of, of these different sides? Yeah, so maybe I'll go back to what inspired me to think about this study. Um, in uh, Davos in 2007, I was part of the advanced course and I was given a talk on infection. Um, and one of the case presentations I gave was an early infection after a bicondylar tibia plateau fracture. Uh, and so a fairly common problem, what we know has a fairly common infection rate. 
and I think we all know is a challenging fracture at times to fix. And, uh, and so it was the early beginning of the audience response system. First year they'd ever used that. Uh, and I sort of gave this clinical scenario and like 85% of the audience said we should remove all of the hardware and start all over. And this is a complex intraarticular multi-fragmented tibia plateau fracture. And I'm like, oh my God, I would never want to do that, nor would I want that with my own fracture. And I guess many people's clinical experience uh, was that it works, but in the literature, it wasn't really well supported, leaving the hardware in place, treating the infection and trying to suppress the infection at least until union. And so the question was, how often does that work? But there was almost no information for this, particularly in the early period. There's a couple other articles that sort of mixed and match up to four months or six months. Um, but no one really looked at that early period within six weeks. So as part of the Southeast Fracture Group, we proposed this study. And, you know, uh, here it is, a uh, first article, JBJS uh, article three years later. So that's the um, genesis of it and, and why it was a dilemma. Uh, because I think you're right that there's no quote unquote right answer. And I think one of the the lessons learned from the paper. Uh, and I think that we state that, that you have to look at everything to make a decision of retain or remove and make this a stage process because it's a huge difference to the patient one way or the other. And, and so I think trying to think, look at, you know, fracture type, open or closed, all those predictors that we have in the paper to use the host type um, you know, what's the bacteria, you know, what's the fixation construct, where is it in the body, what's your coverage, uh, to help you make a clinical decision on whether you should try to keep and suppress and heal, or you need to take it all out and start a stage process. Yeah. Um, so you touched on the, the time frame a little bit, um, and that's always, I think, you know, I, I don't know when, you know, so two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks. Um, how did you all arrive at the six week time frame? And, you know, what do you think that there is a magical time frame for when things can be retained versus a, a different approach? Uh, I don't know for sure. Uh, and we made six weeks up, admittedly, uh, in that maybe fracture healing is more, you know, robust at six weeks for some fractures. Uh, and so we don't know for sure. Uh, and then recently we just published a systematic review of a series of these with one of my infection friends, Dr. William Metzemacher, and his team really led that as systematic review of hardware retention. And what I think that that study shows us is that, uh, that over time, your success deteriorates. And it goes from, there you go, you've got it all pulled up. Uh, and there's a great chart in there that, uh, that shows early on, it's in the 80s, maybe even as high as 90 in the right scenario. And that as you go further on to several months, this is the chart, uh, that it drops to 50-ish percent. And I think this is just one of those things using the world's literature, again, to help the clinician decide where is the patient in this in terms of time. Uh, and then also, you know, all those other factors that help you decide 
uh, you know, which bone is it, degree of fixation, what's the soft tissue coverage, what's the bug, uh, and what's your environment uh, to help make a reasonable decision on can you get this patient through successfully to heal. Uh, and I think that the hardware article from 2010 and this give clinicians a lot more information to help make that decision. Yeah, I, um, this wasn't planned, obviously, but uh, I knew that you had this article out there as well. I mean, one of the, the interesting things to me in looking at both of these is there still is just not a whole lot of information out there on what to do about this, this problem that we have. Um, so on, on the heels of that, another question is, you know, what would you do differently having, you know, both of these papers in mind and what's the next step for us as orthopedic traumatologists in terms of, you know, trying to move this, uh, you know, dilemma forward? Yeah, I, I think the important thing is uh, maybe more patients. Uh, and this is where I think databases could be much more helpful. And instead of we had, a, you know, it was the largest series by far today to 123, but that's almost nothing. You know, if we had 20 trauma centers or an entire database of thousands of patients that get an infection and begin to get some, you know, quote unquote, real world science, at least uh, analysis of that and looking at those that in thousands of patients attempted, uh, uh, you know, the, the DAIR, you know, debridement, uh, you know, antibiotics and implant retention. Uh, to, uh, to see what is the success across that spectrum. And someday we can use AI or predictive modeling to put our patients' criteria into that type of database and spit out a number, you know, whether it's 87% or 52%. I think we could even present that to the patients in terms of shared decision-making and say, if I try to keep this and debride it given your bacteria, your, you know, your characteristics, time from infection, that that may help the patient say, well, geez, try washing it out. Or even if it's 50-50, they're like, yeah, I really don't want everything taken out of my leg again or my arm. Uh, and it can be used for us and for the patients in a shared decision-making model. Yeah, um, you're touching on things that near and dear to my heart, but like, you know, precision medicine or, or really good predictive algorithms for these complex uh, clinical decisions. Um, so I guess we're gonna get close to wrapping this up, but um, going back to say this, this 2010 article and then a couple of the other things out there, like there's risk factors like nails, certain types of bacteria, um, open fractures, some modifiable, some not. How do you think that we should apply this info for these risk factors we have? And what do you do currently in your practice when you're faced with this, you know, should I do a, a, a debridement, antibiotics, and implant retention? You know, as in most things in quote unquote, the art of medicine is that we take all these things into consideration uh, in terms of the duration it's been in, uh, whether or not, you know, our, what we know is that open fractures, uh, you know, diabetes, hardware type that plates were, we were successful 80% of the time with plates and 50% of the time with nails to try to make some sort of um, assessment of what's the 
right or optimal um, option for this patient and then engage engage the patient in that same discussion most of them say what do you want with your leg your, your leg or arm doc um and i you know my pat answer is that you know it's it's not my leg you know it's your leg and different people have different risk tolerances or they are a different place in their life if, if i take everything out then you're less functional for a period of time and if i leave your nail in and we try to suppress it you can still walk on it and uh and try to get this thing to heal and it is less disruptive in your life and if even if that's 50 50 patients may take that uh, again it's not one thing i think it's trying to put the whole you know all that we know and i think as you and i hope we'll get better precision and better information to help patients and help ourselves make better decisions yeah um I think it'll be interesting when we get all the results from, for example, the, the prep it uh, program with a bunch of open fractures, where if we could then look, as you already mentioned, like the big databases, you know, which ones were retained versus not, that's going to supply a lot more patience uh, for us to, to answer some of these more nuanced questions. Um, Thanks again for the interview today. I'm going to ask, is there anything else that you, that you want to add or, or mention about this paper? And if not, well, we'll call it a day and I'll look forward to chatting on the actual live event. Yeah, no, I, I guess I would challenge any of our colleagues that are listening to, you know, help us do better and uh, continue to do this. Uh, I think one of the things we're working on is a uh, database registry that the Orthopedic Trauma Association uh, will sponsor and be part of and that the more members we get to put data into that, that we're gonna start, hopefully it, we're working on the contract for a trial of that, uh, that, that that's the kind of thing that I think will be immensely helpful for these uh, relatively less common problems, uh, but still a major problem for a patient and, and clinical making decision for clinicians. All right, again, Dr. Bremsky, thanks for your time. Thank you, Roman, pleasure to be here. A lot of information, great interviews. Um, the question and answer box or the chat's fairly quiet. So uh, what I, I put a link to a video by Dr. Serkin about how to make an antibiotic nail. And Dr. Obrensky, is there another link or another video on OTA that you could mention? Uh, there uh, is, you have to go through the OTA website to, uh, to get to it. Um, I can try to pull it up and put it in the chat box uh, also. Uh, it's just that it's a common thing that we struggle with sometimes. I thought it was worthwhile to try to put that together. <laughs> like I said, there's a link to Dr. Serkin's video, which is a great video too, and how to it basically just outlines how to all the steps and kind of the step-by-step -step process also in the review paper. But does anyone have any burning questions at this point? Uh, to give everybody some hope that there is in pilot a uh, trial like the Prostolac cement spacer that uh, Total Joints have that um, company is making a uh, one for fractures for, uh, for putting those in. So I think that may be helpful for us in the future. So Dr. Obrensky, in your paper, it talks about antibiotic nails. Uh, I just like to get everyone's opinion on you have an infected nail at three weeks a non-united fracture is are people debriding suppressing or are they doing a stage to take the nail out antibiotic nail and then uh, staging it 
And uh, is the question to me or you want the is panel? Anyone chime in? Anyone? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I guess it would be a little bit on the host. And if it was a open, open, uh, you know, type 3A, B, where it was stuck in the mud, and they have an early infection, I think, oh, this isn't going to work, and I pull it out. If it's a gunshot wound in a 22-year-old in the proximal tibia uh, that pusses out, and it's MSSA, I'd That's probably not leave not it in surprise. Sure. Still yeah, yeah, I think one other question you've got to ask is, and this one's obvious, but I don't know that we said it tonight, is, is, is the implant stable? So if, if you've lost fixation or loss reduction, I think you've got to remove the nail. I don't think it's serving a purpose. I think the question becomes is when, when it is stable, what do you do? I think you've got to look at the wound. For me, is, is there bone loss? Do I think I can suppress it and try to do this uh, with the nail and just antibiotics? Or do I think the antibiotic nail will benefit? And sometimes that's a gestalt for how, how pussed out is it? Or is this just a flat breakdown with marginal necrosis that goes down to the fracture side? I think there are a lot of factors that come into it. And some of it's, uh, I think, gestalt and know what's going on. But if I see Frank pus pouring out of a wound, the biofilm host, aka the nails, probably coming out with an antibiotic nail going in. The other thing you can do, uh, which I learned the hard way, is, is you can, if you do get a CAT scan, you can actually look and you can sometimes see air inside of the canal of the nail. And that's a ringer. That, I mean, that tells you you need to pull your nail. These are hard decisions, and, and uh, Bill talked about it, you know, about whether you should keep your hardware, and the longer your hardware stays, uh, the less likely you are, and it's a conversation you have with your patients. I lean more towards telling them I'm going to do less now, and if we have to do more, we can, but uh, it's always a tough call. So as far as the, uh, the fixes study, there, the other metric study that I've curious about and trying to get everyone's opinion is uh, oral versus IV antibiotics. You've done your debridement, exchange your nail, antibiotic nail. Um, so maybe I ought to field that one since I was the PI on that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's been a, uh, since I, and for the people listening in, and since I was a medical student, I, I thought I couldn't figure out why uh, IV antibiotics were better than PO antibiotics. And start keeping a file. Everything I learned in, in medical school and pharmacology and bioavailability indicated that it probably should be. Uh, and uh, I think you now have the Oviva trials uh, in Europe, which was uh, musculoskeletal infections of all kinds, fracture-related, native joint, uh, and uh, uh, native osteomyelitis. So, and ours was just fracture-related infection in the, in the metric trial presented at the OTA. We are working on getting that to New England Journal or somewhere, uh, but at least what we presented, there was no difference in reinfection rate and no difference in um, what were called failures, either to the hospital, hospital readmissions or admissions for um, DVTs or uh, infected lines. And the reinfection rate was 30% in each group. So uh, when we do our sort of finally sort the data, it'll be hard to say that there's going to be a real difference. It was almost identical in each group. Any, as far as patient satisfaction, uh, we were part of that study too. And I just found people were more apt. They were more, 
they're more excited about or taking a pill than having a pick line and having a nurse coming in their house doing their IV antibiotics. Did anyone have the same kind of feedback? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I've been trying to use oral antibiotics for a long time. We tried to look at it along, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And the problem was, was in our population, I just couldn't get longitudinal follow-up to follow them. But if I had an infectious disease doctor that was willing to put everyone on orals if it was sensitive to a Cipro or a Levaquin or, or something else. Um, and people, it's way easier to get people to take a pill than it is to get a IV. You know, some people, especially in my population in Newark, uh, you can't put pick lines in them, you can't put central lines in them, or they can uh, use those ports for IV drug abuse. And so, pills are way better and we just didn't. So I, I look forward to convincing every one of the articles that are coming out now that, um, that say, uh, yeah, we can go ahead and use oral antibiotics and then we just have to convince our IV doctors to help us go with orals. Right up there with Bill's paper that said, we, you know, we don't have, take all the hardware out. So that, we've stopped at least at our hospital too. Yeah, so the irony is that the assumption is that IV antibiotic compliance is better. Um, although shockingly in the world's literature, there's not a tremendous amount of uh, really good data on what is compliance and what does compliance mean. Um, that's a whole nother project. Um, but for somebody who's had a pick line, and that's a different story, um, even somebody who should know me, my compliance with IV antibiotics was poor, <laughs> not near as good as it should be, is the irony. Yeah, I, I think it's also what antibiotic you can get. For me, Libequin was a good one because, you know, it's once a day as opposed to Cipro, which was twice a day. I don't, I think is. I think any antibiotic that's three times a day or four times a day or any medicine, to take any medicine four times a day is impossible. Three times a day is approaching impossible and twice a day is okay. If they're in an institution, sure, IV is good, but otherwise, uh, you know, or if you have a home infusion company coming, maybe. Dr. Gary, thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's challenging. I think the, the thoughts on compliance, if you've got a home antibiotic company, coming it's great um i think orals are great if they work um and i don't think we know i think we're getting light i think if you have good bioavailability and take orals that's definitely something you know better for a patient i mean i i think the thing that people forget often is that you know we often talk about should we take cultures in every non-union if it doesn't look like a non-union and then we get the incidental positive but we, we have to remember if you're doing a pick line and that's where we've been i think we're moving past that where orals work the pick lines, pick lines aren't benign. You know, I've seen people with clots that go near their brain in a 17-year-old and, and nearly have a stroke. So that's not necessarily just a benign procedure. It can have severe complications. So I think we've got to be judicious about what we culture and then what we do and remember that there's risk to every treatment we have. The other thing is, is I, th I, you know, there are people out there now looking at not using any systemic antibiotics. And I think the big change over the last 10 years and 15 years that we've been doing this is, is we're better at the breeding, right? And so we're more aggressive. We have better ways of dealing with uh, bone loss and bone defects. And we've gotten better with all of that. And maybe um, 
it's a function of how well we debreed more than the amount of antibiotics we're given. So, Mike, I'm not sure that we are the better debreeders. I think Bob was saying that we're no better than we were 30 years ago. Uh, and that our infection rate in bad tibias that require debridement is exactly the same or a little bit worse, 28 versus 22%. Yeah, those are open tibia fractures. That I mean, that's a little different than I think what we're okay. treating. Then for I mean, that, that's an open tibia fracture. Um, you know, I don't know if we're better at debriding. I think it's related to the injury with open tibias and the soft tissue. I think what I'm talking more about is we're better. I think we're better at treating infections in terms of debridement, soft tissue coverage. Uh, at least I know I am. I'm more comfortable with it. It seems, I don't know if I'm better. I don't uh, have a good database to look at that, but it sure feels that way, but I'm not really sure. But I, I do think that um, the debridement we're a little bit better at maybe. Bill and Mike, I mean, I, I feel like once I have a known infection, I'm more aggressive. I'm an aggressive debreeder anyway with open fractures, but I, I think we've got to be mindful of what a transporter. There's a whole whole another line of discussion that even fix it gets into there, and the secondary papers on the cost of transport to a patient. What does that do to their life for a year, even when it works, versus hitting the home run and having a nail and bone graft work? I, I think they're different, but. I, I feel like I'm definitely more aggressive once I have a known diagnosis of infection because I've got to get rid of the infected dead bone. Whereas in an open fracture and you're kind of questioning early on, is it dead? Is it not? And then what's the consequence of creating a segmental defect and in the size of that segmental defect? I, I just feel like I get more, much more aggressive once I know I've got infection that I've got to deal with. I, I think that's true because you're, you know, you could have no vascularity. The bone could be dead from an open fracture and there's no way to know because it hasn't had time to do anything. It still looks like it's healthy. It's the right color. It's the right consistency. It's the right, it's not brittle. It doesn't pop off. When we're doing an open, when we're doing an infection and you have this ivory white looking bone and the thing just, you kind of scrape it and the thing breaks right off. You know, that's infected and dead, at least dead. I don't know about infected. But I think you're right. I think we're more aggressive with infection or in general, I think people are more aggressive with infections who are treating this on a regular basis. So I want, I want to bring up uh, one of the questions that's come up in the Q&A uh, by the different attendees. We talked about IV antibiotics or some sort of, um, or even systemic treatment, PO antibiotics. But the question's come up uh, twice about, what about local antibiotics? So posed to the panel, you know, who's using local antibiotics in their infection surgeries? Uh, and I'll start off, with, pretty much I use it all the time. So if I have an infection and I've done something about the infection, at the end of that surgery, there's gonna be some sort of local antibiotics. I don't have a good algorithm to describe to you, whether it's going to be powder at that point or some, you know, beads that might get taken out or calcium sulfate that I expect to dissolve, et cetera. But um, I am a proponent for local antibiotics for the treatment of infection. So am I. And so, I, I mean, I have a pretty, so my algorithm is basically, let's start with an infection that has no fracture. If there's an infection with no fracture, then fractures healed. I will use resorbable antibiotics as long as I can put the res resorbable antibiotics deep to 
some type of fascia or muscle or inside a bone. I will not use it in subcutaneous areas of bone, let's say like a lateral malleolus or a medial tibial plateau, because that's going to persistently drain. Now, Mike McKee has shown that that drainage is sterile and that it just, as soon as the uh, calcium sulfate resorbs, so will it, but I just cannot take staring at that for four to six weeks. So in those cases, I'll just use some powder. If on the other hand, there is a non-union, um, I will try to get a, you need stability. So to treat an infected non-union, you need stability. My go-to is an antibiotic rod if I can do that. If I can do an antibiotic rod, that's what I prefer over everything because then I'm going to have a soft tissue envelope that is sealed and clean and I don't have external fixator pins, et cetera, that are uh, in that area. The last part is, is if there's a bone defect, I like to use a, a block spacer that is placed in appropriately, which means that it covers the ends of the bone. It's put in, I put them in with the cement uh, still um, soft and I copiously irrigate and irrigate the entire time while it's hardening the bone. The cement never gets hard. It becomes part of the bone and the construct and it by itself induces stability. There's something always uh, an adjunct to it, either a rod or an antibiotic plate. Um, and that's basically my protocols for using either powder, resorbable beads, or cement. Dr. Gary, Dr. Obremski. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel the same. I don't, I don't feel there's much harm. I think you should go broad spectrum uh, if you're going to do it, if you don't know the organism, because uh, I don't think you want to select out. Um, but I, I don't tend to like the, the calcium sulfate because of the drainage unless something can be closed over it. And so I don't use that as much as I would just powder. And then I will use beads if I know I'm coming back, or PMMA beads, if I know I'm coming back. If it's going to require a second surgery to remove them, I, I'm not likely to use them. I'm, I'm tending to, to, to be like Mike and I try to use the antibiotic nails uh, when I can to get that local delivery where I don't necessarily have to open the fracture site to come back if I don't need to. That might be the contrarian. I have gone far away from antibiotic coated nails. I think so little, only five, to, the data is five to 15% of that uh, antibiotics elutes. Uh, I think as Mike said, over the first couple of days and then it becomes a foreign body. Um, and some of those nails aren't gonna heal or are gonna become reinfected. Uh, and then when you pull it out, I've had a number that are delaminated when you pull it out and it's a challenge to get it out. Uh, some of it gets chopped up in a rhea, but, uh, you know, getting the long forceps down there is no fun. Uh, and so I've gone away from using antibiotic, uh, coated nails. I, I know it's becoming a little bit of a fashion and there's even a couple studies using it acutely, but I'm, I'm just, uh, I think we're going to have better options in terms of coated nails with genomycin, which are available in Europe, um, or some other substance that's antimicrobial. Uh, some other substance that's uh, antimicrobial. Um, is this around Elizaroff rods, or are you talking about yeah. around fabricate? Because I, I, I'm with you. Putting them around a small diameter nail and, doing, and trying to keep room for the interlocks, that's a no-no because it delaminates predictably every time. It's terrible. Digging all the cement out is horrible. But around, I've never had one delaminated around an Elizaroff rod. You know, no, 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 I've never had that. I'm sorry, I mistook with you. I thought you were talking about putting around a small nail. No, um, I think we've also probably seen when we're trying to pull out it through a off a uh, 
uh, a guide wire that it'll pull the guide wire will pull up through it. Um, you know, yeah, we so washers on the end of them now, uh, or you yeah. drop rods to try to prevent that. Yeah, Elizaro. So I, I used to make antibiotic rods on uh, bead tip guide wires, hoping that the bead tip would keep it on. And then uh, the person who I, I, I've done a lot of uh, homework to find out, the person who told me about it was on a bus about 20 years ago. And then I was talking to someone and the person I think who I think came up with sticking it on an Elizarov coated nail was Tracy Watson. And the only thing I added was I put on, and I used to put hinges on the bottom, uh, sorry, nuts on the bottom thinking it would pull off. I've never seen it pull off ever. And I have left nuts in the bottom of a tibia and the bottom in a femur, so I stopped doing that. And the only other thing is I had a female hinge on the end of the nail, and that's purely for extraction purposes. I agree with what uh, Bill and Josh said about putting it on a smooth nail. I think you will leave it uh, behind and I don't do that ever anymore. I had an N of one, I did it once. I left cement in the canal and I said, never again. We only remember the worst thing that, you know, our worst complication and that was mine. And I agree with you, Bill. I think it only eludes antibiotics for a short term. But I want stability and it provides enough stability and uh, and I take them out at three months or six weeks even and I exchange them for a real nail. No, I, so, I, I apologize. I was wrong there. So there it doesn't, a, it doesn't act as a do form bar. Janet Conway has published good data. Joe Shu has a little bit of data. Um, so I can't say it's a bad idea or certainly um, something you shouldn't do. I just say I am not a fan of that. Uh, of that technique. It's probably something yeah. that can and, work. I just and, think there are complications the, with that. And, and I'll tell you one thing, I'm a little bit afraid of when we do get antibiotic coated or gentamicin coated nails that people are going to be sticking them in every fracture. And I am really concerned about what we're going to create in terms of resistance to antibiotics. And it should be as a treatment for an infection, I believe, or high risk, you know, 3B, 3C open tibias. Yeah, I agree with I agree with Mike there uh, as well. I think the one other thing and it came up earlier, uh, most of these do. Mike talked about most of these have rotational stability, so you don't need interlocks. One thing I've done in acute situations where it's really not stable, where someone comes in with a pathologic fracture associated with osteomyelitis, is I've taken a female adapter on the end of the five thirty seconds rod and use that to get interlocks at least on the far end of the nail. So if you use a female adapter, you can typically use you know, either 4.0 screws or even 5.0 interlocks from some of the sets uh, to go through and give you some rotational control. Uh, you could do that on both sides, but then you've got a, you know, first rule of implant placement, Charlie Reinert and Adam Starr taught me is how you get it out when the pus comes dripping. So I, I think that's the challenge there is, is how you'd get that out. Uh, if you, but you can make interlocking nails uh, with a standard Elizer offset and the female adapters. I've even thought about using ranchos, but I think the challenge there would be getting a, a square peg and a uh, generally cylindrical uh, tube inside the uh, femur because it's just I think, bigger. But I, I think you'd get it in, but any fracture healing that occurs at the not at the non-union site is not going to come out. I've tried the rancho. I've tried the female hinges inside, and the thing. Like when I tested the stability, there was just some rotation in it and it didn't do what I wanted to. What I have used the female hinge for stuck inside of a tibia is if I put it in through the heel 
as a retrograde now, and I put a, a put a screw in that just so it doesn't uh, fall out as they start walking. I have a question since Bob's not here for the panelists and also our our guests. Uh, your thoughts on the fix it trial? If we would have um, designed it with uh, um, you know high use users doing the frames and then uh, us mere mortals who don't use frames routinely uh, and compared those 3A and 3B tibias, do you think the results would have been different? I'm not sure that they would have been. Yeah, I, I know that design's there, but I think number one, I don't think we would have ever gotten to enrollment. So I think it wouldn't have been a pragmatic study. Um, and, and if you randomize by center and said, everyone's gonna do rings, I, I think there are more factors than that. And you know, I think it I think what Bob mentioned in the video about Hudson and the debridement, you know, where, where his study was good, but he was treating these all like tumors and creating a segmental defect that was often large and transporting them all. You know, that's probably the most predictable way not to have a complication. But I think what is the cost of that? You know, if if we're gonna take out a five centimeter segmental defect and transport every patient with a three B or severe 3A open tibia, that's that's a big cost. And and that that's my thought on it. I it may be different, but I, you know, I I did quite a few rings when I was in Houston to to help with that. And I think there there's some expertise and things you learn with them, but I think transport's completely different than a static ring to get someone to heal. Yeah, I would just so, add I'll just add that the, 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 my, under, my sense from the fix-it trial was the question is, does metal at the hardware site matter? Um, and if, and it, it didn't, right? And the expertise at putting a frame on um, doesn't, I mean, it would maybe cause more complications with pin sites or all sorts of other ring-related complications. But if you're really asking, does hardware at the fracture site uh, make people at more risk of a deep infection you know, the deep infection risk was at, was the same or higher in the no hardware group. So, you know, the important question for me, I think was pretty well answered. So what's different about using a ring fixator than using a unilateral or fixer? Because they looked at this 25 years ago, right? Barron's looked at uh, open tibias with nails versus uh, first they used nails, uh, plates versus X-Fix and then X-Fix versus nails. And nails were better because the X-Fixes weren't as stable and they were more malunion. So I don't believe that it's what we, I don't believe it's the metal we put in related to it. I believe it's how we treat the open fracture and the soft tissue. And I think that's the real answer to me is, is it's how you treat the soft tissue and if you have a plastic surgeons that are willing to help you and you do a good job with open fractures, I think your infection rate's lower. And if you have a place where your plastic surgeons don't really care about helping you, I think your infection rates are higher. That's just my opinion. Yeah, no, hey, uh, Leah, that's a great insight into that study. The question is metal at the fracture. And, you know, this was, I mean, I'm old enough that when I was a junior resident, you never nailed an open tibia on day one and uh and then we you know, did the, Chat, the chapman study of uh, xfix versus im nail and showed no difference in infection but right. a lot more operations to get them to heal primarily bone grafts and a higher mal malunion so, so do you know what 
Do you know where that? So I was of the well. It was dogma not to do it, but Fred Barons was my chairman when I was a resident, and so Fred would nail everything, uh, even though he did a lot of external fixer work. Do you know where that original literature came from to not nail an open tibia fracture? Uh, it was Larry Bone's original article on open tibia, on nailing tibia fractures. They had eight open tibia fractures. Two of them got infected. They quoted a 25% infection rate and said you can't nail open fractures. But it had to do with the original study. It's got to be 30 years ago yeah. on, cool. on reamed intramedullary nails. That's great. I didn't know that. Hence, hence why it's okay to challenge dogma because sometimes it's not based <laughs> well, on very much. Yeah, and that's what it was. And and I guess the reason why, I mean, Fred was my mentor, Fred was my chairman, Fred was my boss, and, you know, and he did a lot of that work on unilateral external fixators. And so this was just something we knew. So, so for the sake of time, uh, does it, I'd like every uh, speaker to, where do we go from here? Where are we? We, we've shown that metal at the fracture away from the fracture and open tibia it doesn't make any difference. How do we get better at treating infections or eliminating or reducing infection rates? For me, you know, for me, the thing that I have found the most helpful in treating infected non-unions, I think infected unions, I don't think are that big of a problem, to be honest with you. Uh, I think we're, I mean, to me, I see them they rarely come back. It's the infected non-union. And for me, the number one thing that I really think helps me, in addition to an adequate debridement, good stability, is soft tissue coverage. And I push my my plastic surgeons, if there's any defect at all, they're not facking and skin grafting, there's no way back in, there's no way to do your bone graft. I really want them to put down a flap. They put a flap down. It brings blood, which then give, is the best treatment for infection and for the non-union. And for me, it's been really, really helpful. And probably the most common location for that's distal half of the tibia. You know, I, I think we, you know, there's a MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas that a big billboard up that says where you go first matters. And, and I think one thing we can start standardizing or, or working to standardize through things like the ACS and OTA is, is what's expected for open tibias. Because I think if you can get a good debridement and prevent that infection early on, we still see from Fix-It the rates are high, but, but what we can prevent are the ones that go somewhere that doesn't have the expertise, doesn't get the closure, has someone that's debriding an open tibia once a year, and once they're infected, that, that's no good. Uh, so I think prevention's important. And then I think we, you know, I think what Mike said, I, I think the coverage so that we can do an adequate debridement and we're not skimping on it or saying, gosh, I don't have someone adequate to cover this, or they're not going to put a flap on. So I'm going to try something else. And you're, I think you're kicking the can down the road a little bit. I think the collaboration with plastic soft tissue reconstructive surgeons or our own surgeons that are willing to do that, that are microvascular trained. I think that's critical in combination with a uh, traumatologist. Yeah, I think the at least what I heard was the question is where we go from here. And uh, where I, I think we'll go from here is better assessment of viability of the tissue. 
uh, with some work that Lee is doing, I, I think on what's alive and what's dead uh, or others, and whether it's going to be a spy or something to make us better or to give people who have 30 years of experience a little more information when you're three years in uh, and do a better job of debriding appropriately. And then local antibiotic or local, local antimicrobial something, um, whether it's a gel or a microsphere um, that elutes over a relatively short but high dose period of time, I think will be uh, helpful. And those are things coming down the pike. Uh, I do think, as Mike said, and I think as Josh, that time, and, and it was the, the best paper at the OTA last year was Paul Tornetta's work, that time from debris, fi final implantation to coverage needs to be less than 48 hours. And we even have sat down with our plastic surgeons to, okay, we all think this is true. Let's design a system to make this happen. Uh, and that may be a huge thing because though that'll drop it from hopefully 20 to 30% to less than 10 or 5%. Are yeah, I, I, coming down the line uh, in terms of where do we go for here acutely? Uh, and then in the chronic setting, if you can, you'll have fewer in the, in the chronic. If you do that, and again, it's going to be probably local debridement and local antimicrobials uh, on, the, on the late end as well. And we probably need help with better assessment of viability and, and, uh, and the chronic as well as a new product that can provide high dose but short term to prevent the uh, resistance. It's low dose long term that, that creates resistance. The last comment I'll make about uh about that is, and I don't know if it's where we need to go, but something we need to be cognizant of, and that is, is we can't, uh, awareness, uh, you know, if you think, you know, kicking the can down the road or denying that it's an infection is only going to make things worse. And I think early, early recognition, early treatment, aggressive treatment uh, will be really helpful. Great. I think there's a great, there's a great question in the, in the chat about how to get ID consults um, to, to not say, you know, I, I called the 11th and 12th commandment are, uh, you know, thou shalt take out all hardware and thou shalt give six weeks of IV antibiotics, you know? Uh, <laughs> and I think the way to get around those is with data and conversations. Uh, and because this is not brand new, there's a clinical infectious disease from 20, from 2012 uh, uh, that states that PO antibiotics are as good. Um, and I think we have some data to show that you can leave well-fixed hardware in, in place. And sit down, we have journal clubs once a year with our training and our ID people. Uh, we, uh, you know, have a, you know, a set ID, ortho ID team. And honestly, to get that, we fired ID for five years and had our internists run it. And finally, they came back and said, okay, what can we do to get your business back? And we said, well, give us, you know, a set number of people that only do orthopedic. And I think that's become much more standard, uh, mm -hmm. certainly in an academic setting. Yeah, so the, yeah, the I think that's how you get them to quit saying, you know, in the chart, take out all the hardware and give them a pick line uh, by having a conversation. And now every time, and Mike, I just, so you said that the ID doc tells them what they're going to get. I'd say the ID doc and I have a conversation yeah. and we come to a decision on, is this patient reliable for PO is the bacteria is in our, our and that we send some people home on PO antibiotics after a acute deep infection. Yeah, yeah I, I think, think that's critical. Picking up the cell phone 
and, and call on your consultants. You don't have to consult people you don't want. You don't have to take the routine of the day. Just like it probably goes the same for ortho. If we treat people bad, they're probably not going to want to send us patients, but just picking up and having the conversation. And every once in a while, you find someone you don't want to work with. So just choose not to work with them because we largely get to decide who we want to work with on these. Yep, I agree. Educating. And they're a consultant. You can respectfully decline their opinion. Collaboration and education. Yeah, we are the experts on musculoskeletal infection. Yep. Well, I'd like to thank everyone for participating. I'd like to thank our uh, speakers. Uh, great insight. Uh, really appreciate it. And then uh, we'll wrap up with uh, some take-home points. From the Fix-It trial, uh, we've kind of learned that hardware at the site or away from the site, uh, infection rate remains high despite uh, some technological advances. Um, antibiotic nails and rear effective treatment options for debriding long bones. Uh, they do have some pitfalls and like we talked about, there's some videos out there online that will help you get through those. And then uh, deep infection after internal fixation acutely. Um, there's evidence uh, from Dr. Obramski's paper that says you can debride, retain your hardware and uh, give antibiotic suppression until you need. So um, some upcoming journal club events uh, next month is pediatrics and then July is to be determined. So stay tuned. Thank you.